It goes without saying that the Internet is the most powerful space and place for conducting commerce. And that's certainly been true during the pandemic. It's also the most powerful space for sharing news and information. But it is also where we communicate personally. Most governments actually have generally taken a hands-off approach to this. They've left the whole job of censoring or monitoring what goes on online to big tech, and they have been willing to do it. But now it seems that the government here in Canada wants to take on that role, either directly or indirectly through some body like the CRTC or appointed commissioners. It gets to the very core of our democracy and what free speech is about and who decides what we get to say and when. Michael Geist is the Canadian Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa, and he's a member of the Centre for Law, Technology and Society. And he's been um, writing endlessly about this on Twitter and other places, because I think we all have to grapple with this. Michael, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Great. What's uh, for me, and I guess it it belies my years in journalism, but for me, this is fundamentally a free expression of free speech argument. How do you see it? Yeah, no. Well, I think that there's there's almost two sets of discussions, at least, that are taking place with respect to this bill. Um, You know, one of them is how do we and in what form do we regulate uh, the online environment, particularly streaming services. And I think there's a there's an important and interesting discussion to be had on those issues. But there's no doubt that the issue that has come to the fore over uh, the last number of weeks is in some ways even an, uh, an elevated one is even more important. And that goes, as you suggest, directly to questions of freedom of expression is the is what I see as a, an overbroad regulatory attempt to really capture what is fundamentally expression for millions of people and treat it as roughly equivalent to more conventional broadcast programming uh, has a real significant impact uh, on on basic expression rights of Canadians. I guess the problem that government is coming up against right now or the reaction to their attempt through Bill C-10 to start to regulate this is that people and and I mean, you can be seven years old and figure this out, that the Internet is not the same as the CBC or CTV or a radio station. It's not a broadcaster in the traditional sense. So saying you're going to regulate it the way you regulate the CBC or CTV for Canadian content or bad language or threats, you you just you can't use that same blunt instrument. No, you can't. I think you're absolutely right. And and this bill does that in at least a couple of ways. I mean, as it, its foundational approach actually goes to exactly your point, where it essentially says we've had these longstanding rules for radio and television, and we can now incorporate the online environment in the same way. And and I believe that's a little bit of a trying to, you know, the proverbial square peg in a round hole kind right. of situation. That's not to say that you can't regulate the online environment, but it is to suggest that adopting roughly the same kinds of rules for online Online services as you have for conventional radio and television, I think doesn't work. And in fact, I think when you take a look at some of the elements of the bill, it becomes immediately obvious how it doesn't work. Uh, but even more, the government, at least in that, what I think sort of faulty approach, recognized that there should be a difference between 
let's say, streaming services, the Netflixes of the world that, that do yeah. look more like a conventional broadcaster and platforms, video sharing platforms, audio sharing platforms of people that engage in podcasting and video sharing and uh, TikToks and the like. And we needed to distinguish between the two. That's certainly the approach we've seen in other countries. And yet, where we find ourselves now is that the government is treating that aspect as well, that user-generated content as a program subject to some of the same rules as it would any other program. I just I just want to divert for a moment here because I, I can't tell, and I've watched government function for a lot of years of my life from a lot of different vantage points, and I can't figure out what they're up to. If they want money from big tech to pay for more Canadian content or more content that they think is politically acceptable, then go and tax them. You can't raise money through regulation. It's a really inefficient way to go about it. Um, or or did, they, did they just not understand what they, the issues that they were pushing to the fore by trying this kind of clumsy approach? Yeah, well, perhaps it's all of the above. I, you know, I, you know, I certainly agree with you that, you know, if this is fundamentally about squeezing the large tech companies for a bit of money to help support the creation of Canadian content, there are much more efficient ways to do it. In fact, ways that don't create the same kind of market distortions as this bill is mm. going to create. And it would result in getting revenue to creators far faster. I mean, one of the ironies is government keeps insisting that there is a, an emergency, an urgency to, to get this done. The reality is certainly at least pre-COVID, we saw record amounts of financing going into film and television production in Canada, never more than we've seen over the last number of years. So I don't think there's a strong case that, that, that that's what's happening. But even if you take it that, yes, it would be good to bring in more of that kind of revenue, this bill, if it is to pass, is going to play out over many years before the CRTC and in the courts, before creators see a dime. Whereas right. you suggest, you know, a tax model, when we've got a government that actually has moved now towards a digital services tax for tech companies, there is some of that money coming in, simply saying that they were going, they're going to commit some of that money towards helping to fund Canadian content doesn't create the kind of distortions, doesn't have the impact of trying to blow up the act with all of these ancillary negative effects uh, and would actually result in revenue. So if it's about getting that revenue, there are better ways to do it. If it is about so-called discovery, promoting Canadian content, well, then they're really going about it, I think, all wrong. I, I think they misunderstand the medium uh, because unlike a broadcaster, which arguably has different incentives than, certain, let's say, the cultural sector in terms of, you know, it may have it may be required by law, by regulation to create a certain amount of Canadian content. But we all know that some of the broadcasters kind of bury some of that content because it doesn't believe it's the most profitable of that content. That's a far different situation than, say, a Netflix whose business model is based on having satisfied subscribers who can walk away any day. And if Canadians really do want to see Canadian content, companies like Netflix, or Disney or Amazon, whomever, have all the incentive in the world to make sure that they can find it. The idea that somehow they would want to bury or hide the content that Canadians want to see runs right. directly counter to their entire business model. Well, or that anybody else, I mean, you look at a at a program like Schitt's Creek or something that that has international followings. I mean, it, it's hard to predict what the, the magic formula is. But if something is good or funny, if it's supposed to be funny, people will watch it and they will find it. 
Yeah, no, I think there is that discovery. Listen, I I would agree with with the with those that support um, some greater algorithmic transparency that we should right. better understand how those choices are being made because we do wonder sometimes is there self dealing taking place from some of these services? Are they promoting stuff that is of in course. their is in their own self interest as opposed to what is the most popular? I mean, generally speaking, I find that the critics of the of the tech companies. Uh, and there's good reason, without doubt, to be criticizing them on privacy issues, on some of the anti-competitive mm-hmm. issues. On these issues, they tend to be to sort of be self-contradictory all the time. On the one hand, they say, you know, these companies are evil. They're always looking for ways to keep people on the site watching as much as possible. And on the other hand, they say that they're making it hard for people to find the stuff that they want to watch. I mean, it right. doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I mean, their incentive is I think they're right to keep people on the platform. And in Netflix case, uh, their incentive is to keep you subscribing so that you're finding stuff that you want to watch. And so in some ways that does put to the test the one of the core premises of, of some, some in the Canadian cultural community, which has been to argue that Canadians want to watch or would only watch Canadian content uh, would it if it was easier to find and that somehow they're having a hard time doing that. I just don't think that in this environment, that really reflects the reality of how the how that marketplace or how that environment functions. Distinct from, I'll I'll say, um, conventional broadcast, where you know we've created a system there that is so beholden to what is viewed as cheaper or at least more profitable U.S. content that there's no doubt through things like simultaneous substitution through those regulatory rules, there's no doubt that Canadian content sometimes is either hard to find or shifts around in terms of when it was available. Now, some of those things are, are feel even a little bit anachronistic. They're they're back in the day when you really had to watch something at a given time. Now, of mm-hmm. course, it's available to you streaming anyway. But even if you take the point, the, the streaming services just have a different business model. And that's not to say that there isn't a role for regulation. I guess it is to say that the role that the regulatory role is not the exact same role that we've had for conventional TV and radio. And broadcasters. I mean, we've had this long experiment with um, forcing uh, the creation and the airing of Canadian content. Uh, I used to do a show when I worked at CTV on Sundays called Question Period. Um, It was a half an hour. The other half hour in that hour was the littlest hobo, um, (laughs) a show about a dog (laughs) who saved the day, ever popular. Uh, But that was the Canadian content chunk on Sundays to get the check mark, right? Politics and, you know, who doesn't love a dog? (laughs) We have come a very long way from this and we can't regulate it as if it were the same. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think I think you're right. That's a that's a terrific example. And you know, one of the problems is that you know you can, I guess, at least identify whether or not the dog is Canadian or the dog program is Canadian. <laughs> exactly. But once we start moving into a user-generated content world, and this government puzzlingly suggesting that it can do the same thing when it comes to user-generated content, I just think that that when you take a look at how UGC runs, how user-generated content runs, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, are Canadians all going to be required to self-identify where they come from and where they're located as the CRTC then seeks to build in some kind of requirements? We know the platforms don't, don't do this. In fact, we know there is no country in the world that has taken this approach to user-generated content. Nobody thinks it's well, appropriate. And there China. are many countries. No, well, <laughs> actually, the closest analogy I've been able to find actually is Pakistan, uh, which does have apparently some rules on domestic content. Now, of course, there are many 
countries, and China would be one of them, yeah. that, that has blocking of content. But we're not yeah. talking in this instance, or at least for this bill on blocking, although the minister of Dubot has talked about blocking in some other contexts. Yeah. Here we're talking about prioritizing some content over others and having a government regulator make those decisions. Uh, and quite literally, nobody else does that. The minister, and, and again, this is just a moment's diversion, but the the conflicting message, the messages that he leaves in the course of one five minute conversation is almost breathtaking. Uh, I don't know whether he even understands how the industry works or not, but he says in one minute there will be no user generated content constraint or rules or censorship that you can put up your cat video and it's okay. And, you know, I can post what I had for lunch and everybody can watch it. Then the next moment he actually says, if you have a lot of clicks or viewers, then we will regulate you. I mean, I don't even know how he thinks that's technically possible, uh, short of what you say, which is somehow when I go on Twitter, or you go on Twitter, you say, hi, I'm Michael Geist, and here's where I was born, and here's my date of birth and my SIN number. I mean, really? <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. In this context, I don't think it does. It, it does work. And obviously, you're right. The minister, I think, uh, has had a real challenge communicating the bill in, in some really important interviews. Obviously, there was the the one on CTV where he was asked, I think, quite rightly, you know, if this provision that you, that you've now taken out on user generated content was important enough to be in the bill to begin with, then why did you remove it? And I didn't yeah. feel, I think, most people felt he didn't have an answer for that. And then most recently was uh, on, I guess, your former program was confusing. Uh, some of those basic issues in terms of who this law would apply to. I think it is worth noting that there are some cultural groups that are supportive of the interpretation that the minister was giving. So while they've tried to walk back this idea that audience size would matter for regulatory purposes, we should understand there are a number of cultural lobby groups that lobbied the committee to remove both Section 2.1 and Section 4.1, both of the safeguards for user-generated content, and envision that kind of regulation. Who are those groups and why are they doing it? Is 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 it a financial thing? If the if the music musicians in Canada go, can't go out and tour, then they want to have more protection for their industry. Is it cultural groups or people who feel that they are being victimized in some ways? So they want to be able to censor anybody who criticizes them. Who is it? Yeah, so it's it's groups like the CDCE, which is one of the minister's favorite groups to mention. He references them quite regularly in response to questions when he doesn't want to answer the question. Uh, <laughs> their brief, which which went directly to the committee, called for the removal of both of the user-generated content safeguards. So had the committee adopted their vision of, of this regulatory approach, they would have wanted both individual users and all their content to be regulated. Uh, ACTRA is another organization that came forward with a proposal where they said it should be the CRTC that decides which users get regulated. So they said, you know, there are some users that become more professional in the sense that they're generating revenue off of uh, YouTube videos or TikTok videos and clearly suggested that those users ought to be regulated. Now, you know, the idea that we are going to, we would bring in thousands of Canadians who are finding success on these platforms and seek to treat them as equivalent to, you know, a conventional broadcaster or 
you know, that kind of regulate that kind of the kind of content producer is is I think quite stunning. I mean, I don't know that the CRT, I know the CRTC does not have the capability of even dealing with that kind of thing right now. Much less there should the thought that that would be an, a desirable regulatory approach is quite frankly absurd. Well, I mean, one wonders whether um, as they review the so-called Broadcast Act that we shouldn't be reviewing the whole concept of can you regulate broadcasting? Do you need a CRTC? If this was all about the preservation of Canadian cultural producers, um, they, as you say, they have been uh, beyond anybody's wildest imagination so successful in terms of both airing their content and making money from it. So do we even need these rules in this new world that we're in? Well, you know what I think. You know, the, people have talked for a long time about eliminating the CRTC. I, you know, I think my view would be that if we eliminated the CRTC, we would do so only to have to go ahead and create some other new regulator. I think there is a role, certainly on the telecom side. It's quite clear that we need this this Correct. regulator yeah. uh, on the broadcast side. I think it, we would do well to reimagine precisely what a regulator would do. If I have a concern, it's that this that the minister is envisioning really layering in a whole series of regulators. He's also talked about creating a new social media regulator on top of the CRTC. So far from trying to take a step back from this approach, uh, he's trying to actually find more, more both mechanism, mechanisms and institutions to regulate. And let's be clear, None of this is to say that there shouldn't be regulation online or that there aren't some critical issues that require regulation. You know, for me, one of the really real sources of frustration and disappointment has been that the government introduced Bill C-11, the privacy bill, within two weeks of Bill C-10. And while it's prioritized C-10, quite obviously, even in the face of all of this public opposition, C-11, which would go directly to what I think is a more foundational concern with these large companies, the collection of our data, the potential misuse of our data, the need for stronger rules, where there is that misuse exactly. There's so much that comes up in this context around privacy and data, and yet the government has abandoned the issue altogether. That bill has quite literally been discussed in the House three times, including its introduction since November. Okay, I, I want to come back to that issue because, again, uh, the motivation here puzzles me. When I hear a minister of, um, you know, of anything say that they want to regulate our exchanges as citizens um, to make sure that it contributes to social cohesion and to eliminate political taunts and criticisms of government. That is different than hate speech or slander or libel or racism. Those we have laws to deal with, and well, we should. But when you say, I want to silence my critics, and I want you all to conform to my view of the world, I get angry and concerned. Yeah. No, and I think rightly so. You know, I think that's why we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's why there have been questions raised about whether or not uh, some of the initial approaches are compliant with the Charter. You know, I think the government has backed away a bit in terms of its vision of this bill getting into the specific content of users in terms of what they say. But I would argue that expression encompasses a number of things, including the ability to be heard, uh, to ensure that your speech is not treated uh, unequally when compared to other speech, and yet uh, 
That's, I would argue, precisely what a government has in mind when it comes to something like this, the so-called discoverability issue in applying it to user-generated content. Do you think that somehow politically they looked at what happened in the U.S. and and big tech is is, you know, more than willing to deplatform a Donald Trump that seemed to get, you know, relatively widespread uh, support in some political communities? Do you think they looked at that and said, hey, maybe we can maybe we can get away with that, too? I, you know, listen, I'm not a politician, so it's hard to read the political motives, but I I would say I don't think that they were looking to get away from get thinking they could get away with it. I actually think that they believed up until the last few weeks, almost that this was a significant political winner. You know, I, I felt that if you look at what particularly the heritage minister had been saying, uh, they viewed running against a Facebook or a Google was a political winner and that uh, you couldn't go far enough in demonizing those companies. And listen, there's no doubt there's plenty of room for criticism right. of those companies. But you really, I think, were left with the sense that they felt that, you know, that there there would be no backlash between from Canadians when it came to regulating the space because People thought that given a choice between what the Canadian government was trying to do and what these companies were doing, they would surely side with the governor, government rather. And what I think we have seen and learned is that I think there is space and indeed there's support for government regulation online, but it is not at all costs. It is not at any price. And, you know, I, I've made the reference to uh, what took place a number of years ago back on during the Harper government and Worth noting, I mean, I, I was critical of them on issues in the same way mm-hmm. that I've been critical most recently. Uh, and I felt around the lawful access Bill C-51 issue back then, kind of a similar sort of right. feeling where you had a government saying, you know, security is all important. And no matter what we do, uh, we should have support for that. And you had a lot of Canadians saying, yeah, I want to feel secure. But you know what? Some of my fundamental freedoms are also really important. And there is a line and you can't cross it. And it seems to me that we are seeing that replayed again here, where the government has thought they've got carte blanche when it comes to this regulatory approach. And I think they are learning that uh, for many, many Canadians, they're really uncomfortable with how far the government wants to go in this regard. And that's kind of a change in the Canadian psyche. I mean, living I, I when I lived in the U.S., you you see it's almost a daily conversation, their constitutional rights, the the right to free speech. They take it very seriously. It's part of the ongoing public discussion about anything. Mm-hmm. And we tend not to have that discussion here. You see a little bit of it around anti-masking or something that we have the right to do this. But generally, that's not how Canadians react or respond to issues. Yeah, no, that you're right. And I think that's obviously I think it's a good thing. I mean, the divisiveness that we see in the United States, yeah. uh, I think, is troubling for a lot of Canadians. And I think we take pride in trying to find um, you know, a, a middle ground, develop consensus on many of these kinds of issues, recognize that freedom of expression is critical, but recognizing as well. I mean, we've got our 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 approach is to say that there may be some some limits in inappropriate circumstances. Uh, so it's not an absolute quite as much as you'd see in the United States. But uh, it's quite clear when you see the response that it is still the starting point is freedom of expression. That's the the starting Mm -hmm. point is that the state does not get to regulate that expression absent 
some something you know critically important and a strong justification and to limit that uh, as much as as much as as you possibly can and yet you know when you see the approach that that's being taken here they're basically saying no the starting point is the CRTC gets to regulate what you say re- regulate what you say in certain respects at least with respect to discoverability uh, i mean that is this is not broadcast this is not a a privileged position where you've got scarce spectrum and so you can make the case that it's appropriate to have some kind of regulatory framework around that for millions of canadians when they speak out on a tiktok or a youtube or an instagram this is basic expression in the same way that for you and I, it might be a blog post or an email or a letter. And we would never dream of saying that the CRTC should be the one to regulate that kind of speech. Yet that's what the government is doing in this context for what is basic expression for millions of Canadians. That That's the thing. It just seems so out of whack. I mean, when I was a teenager, we used to sit and talk on the phone which was, you know, relatively new technology that you could do that without a huge cost, right? Uh, if it was a local call. And you you would just, the, the thought that government would say, we need to regulate what you and your friend are talking about on the phone is just absurd. So when you transfer that to what you and I might say to one another on an email or exchange on Twitter, it just becomes, um, I don't know, bizarre. It is. It is. And, and, and as I say, I, think I, I can't emphasize enough that we're, we're not exactly the first country to think about these issues. Yeah, exactly. everyone else that has looked at this seeks to distinguish between, at least in the online environment, seeks to distinguish between a streaming service, let's say like a Netflix, where yeah. you can get into some of that kind of regulation in terms of, let's say, prioritization or discoverability to at least say, hey, can you find a way to ensure that 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 content gets uh, gets is is more discoverable. Frankly, I think it, it mistakes the 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 model as we talked about earlier. But that is a completely different issue than jumping into these video sharing or user generated content platforms where everyone else who's looked at it has said it makes no sense to to bring in the state and regulate in this way. Okay, so. Um... When we, we've discussed this, which is if you want the big tech to contribute to uh, Canadian content or things that Canadians or the government thereof determines uh, is important, you can tax them and make them pay uh, one way or the other. The debate that we see going on in the U.S., most specifically about uh, of the Communications Act, Section 230, whether these guys, these big tech giants are platforms for us to do our song and dance on, whatever that is, or whether they are actually publishers like newspapers and are therefore accountable for what is said. Um, on that latter point, is there is there a way to approach that 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 isn't full out protection that 230 gives them versus, um, you know, some kind of intense regulation? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And so I guess I'd start with a couple of things. First off, we should be clear that this is not what C10 is about at all. Right. So right. it's a complete, it's just that kind of, of issue in terms of platform liability uh, for moderating content, either removing or deciding not to remove is, is something very different from what C10 touches on. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that the government has effectively already committed to uh, CDA Section 230, these U.S. rules by way of the USMCA, by way of the U.S.-Canada-Mexico trade agreement. That's a really so, good point. We signed on with the trade agreement. So, yeah, exactly. So there may be some limits anyway in terms of 
of what we are able to do. I listen, I do think that there is there is some middle ground, or at least there is some ability to say it's not an absolute blanket immunity, though at the same time, I think people need to recognize that if you don't have now these kinds of safeguards, the the reality is that the that the large platforms or small platforms doesn't matter their size, platforms will then err on the side of taking content down. Um, and you know, I, frankly, we have seen this play out for almost two decades in Canada because we haven't had that those kinds of safeguards. And so, some of the platforms will remove content simply based on an allegation because the risk of getting it wrong is significant. They face real liability if they fail to do so. Um, so we have to be careful here. The same groups that we're often trying to protect and that deserve protection from some of the stuff that we see take place online will themselves be the target. Their speech will be the target uh, if we get some of that balance right. So I do think that there is room certainly to, to tweak the dial, so to speak, a little bit in terms mm-hmm. of trying to uh, increase at least the 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 approach the 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 amount of regulation that takes place my view is that the starting point is to ensure better consistency of policy implementation part of the the problem i think with these companies is they've had very inconsistent or at least the perception is very inconsistent implementation of these policies so one set of rules for one person a different set of rules for another you're never quite sure when it's going to be applied but that's where it becomes political because the voices that tend to be silenced are the more conservative of the voices that's what we have seen to a certain extent even in this country yeah i'm not sure if i if i share that view i know that i i I know that that there is that there is that perception is out there for some i i frankly think that we see content removed uh across the board in certain circumstances and i actually think the problem is isn't that they are targeting one sort of one side or the other or one form of speech or the other I, i must admit i don't really think they are i think that they are incredibly inconsistent in applying their rules um, and so what that does is that it then lends leads to the perception that one group is being targeted over another group. Um, if we had, everybody on either side can find an example. Precisely. And so I think we would do do better to in the same way, actually, the United States takes this approach when it comes to privacy. They don't have strong privacy laws. But one of the things that they do have is they have the they take the position that says, listen, if you have a privacy policy, if you make commitments around what you are going to do with people's personal information, you have to stand by that. And if you fail to meet the standards that you said you were going to set, you can be held liable. We need to, I think, do a better job of incorporating some of those kinds of principles in holding these companies accountable. Uh, there may still be a role for to, to establish certain requirements as well, but at a minimum, We need these companies to do what they say they're going to do, and we need to hold them accountable where they fail to do so. Okay, so um, separate and apart from user-generated content, these other questions of regulation or law uh, that exist in terms of, as I think, as as you put it, algorithmic transparency. You know, we know that we're being steered by certain sites in certain directions and Google wants you to look at Google product and all of that. We, we get that. How do we make that transparent? Does, 
does it help? Does it make a difference if we know that they're doing that and they're telling us right when we go on the screen, we're going to send you to the companies and products that we own and that we benefit from. If we want it, we're going to go anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, where, where they do that, uh, then I actually think and then, then you're into sort of competition law, antitrust rules. Uh, and, and we have seen uh, enforcement or at least attempts to enforce some of those kinds of rules that that self-dealing or preferencing your own own stuff um, in other jurisdictions. Europe has been pretty aggressive lately in dealing with that. And I think that that highlights, again, it's sort of another shortfall of what we've seen so far here in Canada, where there are some big issues to be dealing with where we could be taking on these companies. And that is this is definitely one of them. Uh, but we haven't seen much in the way of trying to enforce those kinds of rules in Canada. It's hard to understand why the government hasn't been more aggressive when it comes to dealing with those kinds of issues. I think there's no doubt when we think about potential bias in the system, uh, one of the only ways that you can do that is if you are able to look under the hood, so to speak, to better understand what's taking place. Now, there are groups that run experiments to try to identify this stuff. And I think it has had a powerful effect where they've identified some of these kinds of things. But if we had built in, or if we do build in requirements that, that, that requires the companies basically to become much more forthcoming about how these choices are made, then we're in a better position to critique, potentially a better position to pressure these companies, for people to say, I'm not comfortable with this, to require greater user choice in terms of what takes place, and to ensure that we don't have the, the the risk of kind of the violations that might might take place where they are seeking to preference some of their own materials over others. But it, it's hard to imagine because it's sort of the equivalent that if you went into, I don't know, you know, Home Depot, that they would say, actually, you should go to Canadian Tire. You know, you're going to get a better price there and they have more choice than we do. Uh, can we realistically expect these companies to um, provide their own competition or you know, uh, highlight the, the competition to their own sales or products? Or do you have to then go and break them down so we don't have these monopolies or duopolies? Right. Well, I mean, I think I think you really point to where we we could be headed if they fail to if they fail to do that. You know, you know, if Google, let's say, is in the search business, then it's incumbent on them to, as they've often said, their goal is to provide people with the most relevant results. And the concern is if it turns out that every time the most relevant result happens to be a Google product or service, people are going to raise some <laughs> questions as to whether or not uh, right. this is truly uh, an impartial, neutral approach. Now, some will say, well, of course, they're not neutral or impartial. Now, part of it, of course, does depend a little bit on, on the kind of service. There's been this tendency to treat all of these companies as kind of with a single brush, right. as, if, yeah. as if a social media company is the same as a search company, which is the same as a video streaming company. Yeah. And they're not. And they each have different motivations and there are different issues. And I don't think we've seen, at least to date from the government, the kind of, I guess, legislative or regulatory sophistication that is needed to understand that there are these significant differences. So where do we start with this? Uh, and I and I always come back to us, the user. Um, this is the way we communicate with one another. Um, we also, so that's one track. There's also the way we consume uh, goods and services. That's one track. Then there's entertainment. I, you know, if I want to watch Netflix, I can 
you know, I can pick what movie theater I go to, you know, can't I have some choice here? Do we have to really break that down and say, this is specifically aimed at whatever Google, this is specifically aimed at Netflix. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, well, I wouldn't say that it's, that individual company, but the different types of services, yeah. I think the answer may be yes. I mean, I, I think actually the starting point is even before we go there, we need to actually get do a better job of figuring out, well, what exactly is the policies that we're trying to achieve here? And then how do we best achieve it? Yeah. Uh, and then And then how do we ensure that some of these large players or the online environment more broadly help contribute to some of those policy objectives. Uh, as it stands now, I think we've done a really poor job of doing that. We've neglected, or this government has neglected some of the most important issues. We've talked already about privacy, about competition law being good examples of that. Uh, so those are areas that I think would be priorities, and it's this it's discouraging at a minimum that they have not prioritized that. Uh, in terms of some of the broadcast issues that we see in C10, then I think it comes back to some of your questions. Is the priority to get some money? Is the yeah. priority to help the sector? Is the priority to make things more discoverable? Uh, and you can, of course, say all of the above, but even if you do, uh, you need to recognize that what we need are effective policies, not policies of yesteryear to achieve that. And that even within that kind of sector, there are significant differences between what you would want to do with a streaming service like a Netflix or a Disney as compared to a video sharing service uh, like a TikTok or a YouTube. So on the issue of content, whatever that form is, but, but I'll come back to mostly the user-generated content, because I think that's where the rubber meets the road, where that <laughs> affects people's lives. I think the, the problem that we've all got is that we don't know what we don't know. If it isn't there, if we can't see it, we don't know there's a different point of view, or there's criticism of the idea that we believe in, or there's a better idea out there that would convince us to change our own minds. This is the fundamental argument of, of free speech. Uh, meet bad ideas with better ideas, you know, change the channel. If you don't like it, mute me, you know, that there's got to be some sense of personal responsibility here and the freedom to use that responsibility. Yeah, no, you're right. I think these are hard issues. I do think misinformation uh, can have a have a powerful impact, and we need to be thinking about ways to deal with that. It's certainly the case that some of these services, social media services, can amplify that misinformation, can have a significant uh, and very detrimental societal impact. And so, you know, we're dealing with COVID-related issues, of course, right now, and some of the misinformation campaigns that I think we've seen around that. Uh, can be incredibly damaging and harmful. And so I, I don't know that that only more information or the right information is enough, that it's it's out there if only you would go and find it. Um, but at the same time, uh, I'm left very uncomfortable with the vision, especially as we've seen it now play out on the cultural side, to say that somehow it's it's going to be the CRTC's job to start making some of those kinds of choices. Well, the CRTC, I think, is, as we've discussed, it's it's a 
it's a dated uh, body and organization that refers to a world that no longer exists, or it exists, but it exists in a much larger context. It's not just a world of broadcasters and and print media. It's the the inter the, the internet genie is not going back in some bottles. So we it does mean we have to reassess all of those issues. Do we need a CBC? Do we need it funded in the way it is? Do we need Canadian content rules? But that's what I'm. Uh, that's what the problem is with this bill is that we're just not sure what it's actually attempting to get at, because those are all legitimate questions. We just have to find a forum for all of them or each of them separately. Well, there's definitely some, there's definitely confusion, I think, about what this bill is seeking to achieve. There are some big picture policy issues that it's quite clear the government is not addressing. Uh, and, you know, I think, sure, there's there's scope for discussion around some of these issues. Uh, certainly my focus over the last uh, while when it comes specifically to this, this has been these, these issues has, of course, been on this bill because it is at this stage the most tangible example of what the government is thinking about from a regulatory perspective. And, you know, I think it's been a flawed bill really from the outset and made far, far worse by the decision to expand its scope to bring into its regulatory ambit um, individual users through regulation of user-generated content. So the answer from, from your point of view on this bill is you can't kind of fix it and accomplish what it is that you want to accomplish in this context. Maybe, you know, it needs a rewrite or we need to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> I think it does need, uh, I think we do need to hit the pause button and try to to rewrite. I mean, I think it's it's quite clear that it, the concerns have struck a chord with a very large number of Canadians. I think that if there is an emergency to deal with, there is the scope to try to find ways to generate, to get revenue to these uh, two creator groups to help support music, film, TV production. Um, you can do that through tax dollars and you can frankly get that money into the system much, much faster than uh, than this bill is ever going to. And I think that, you know, you, you one would hope that the government has heard that message and it's not about not regulating online. It's not, it's, it's about getting the right regulation. And there has been, I think, some serious missteps here. There's been some really mm -hmm. poor communication here. Um, and it would, I think, behoove everyone because it is so critical to get this right. These rules don't change very frequently. Sometimes it's decades before we get significant changes. And if we get some of these issues wrong, we're going to be paying this for paying for it for a very long time. Well, in the government's own behavior through uh, the COVID, the pandemic crisis has has is the one they should be looking at, which is if you want to get money into people's hands so that they can pay the rent or buy food, give them a check. Don't have some regulations about how to behave during a pandemic. Yeah, that's an interesting observation. And you know, in light of the the emergency that obviously developed, the government. You know, sort of basically threw away the traditional playbook and said, "Okay, what what can we do to address these issues?" In this instance, not only are they not throwing out the old playbook, they are basically just using it as the approach, and it's uh, it's a mistake. It's great talking to you, Michael. Thank you very much. I'm glad people like you are thinking about this issue and sharing your thoughts. Michael is the Canadian Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. So a law professor and a member of the Center for Law, Technology and Society. What is that? What is that latter group? 
Uh, the center is at the University of Ottawa. It's really yeah. one of Canada's leading centers that looks at the intersection between law, technology, and policy. It incorporates law professors, but more than that, communication scholars, engineering professors, really go from a wide range of uh, of academics that sort of based in Ottawa have the opportunity to really help examine and, and try to get some of these better policies. Yeah, that's the other big knock on this is that it, it kind of dropped from the sky, like no consultation. <laughs> Go out and talk to people if you're going to uh, change their lives pretty radically. Thanks, Michael, so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for Great. having me. We'll talk again soon. Michael Geist. That's it for No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We'll see you again next time.